filling in. Uh, Daner could not be here this morning. He had a last-minute illness, and so um, brought back memories. Brother Tim and I, uh, 20 years ago this year, exactly 20 years ago, Brother Tim, uh, we went to a different church together, and uh, he was the song leader. So having him lead singing really brought back a lot of neat memories uh, from that time, and, and he did a great job. So I want to thank him for filling in last minute. I was not looking forward to singing in front of the church, and so... Um, I love when people step in and, and, and are willing to help, you know. It's a blessing to all of us, Brother Tim. I want you to know that. Uh, it's a blessing to all of us, not just to get to sing, but to take some of the burden off other people as well. I just want to thank you for that. So that's a real blessing, and uh, we love you, Brother Tim. And uh, you, are you ready to preach? Are you ready to? Don't look around. I'm talking to you. <laughs> all right. So pray for Daner as he uh, tries to recover and feel better. Pray for Pastor and his wife, of course, as they travel. Um, they have a nice restful time, that they have safe travels. Pray for those who are sick. Apparently the Thingstads are sick again. And so pray for those. Dottie, I know, is still recovering, having health problems. Pray for those who are sick among us. Uh, we have quite a few. Um, and praise the Lord for this good weather, right, this week? It's been, and this has been a blessing. This has been a terrible summer. And I speak as somebody who hates both Bakersfield and hot weather. Okay, this has been a terrible summer. And, uh, but this week has been a real refreshing time, hasn't it? Some cool breezes blowing, some cooler weather, but it tells me the summer's almost over and the cooler weather is coming. And I know this year I'll be a lot more thankful for being cold than I was before because I've been hot a lot this year. And I'm a large man, so I, don't, I, I get hot very easily. And so uh, I've not been a fan of this summer, but it's been a good week. The Lord's been good to us. Um, but as I say that, we also have to remember that overseas it's been a very bad week, hasn't it? And a lot of Christians are uh, suffering and, and facing death and persecution. And that's nothing new. I know the, the news draws our attention to places like Afghanistan, but uh, it goes on every day all over the world. Vietnam, Thailand, all these places. It's just, it's, it's, persecution's a very real thing. I know it doesn't touch us in America. Uh, I know we, we're, it's, it's, it's foreign to us, but it's very common. And uh, I think this week has been a good week to draw our attention to it and to realize that there are people around the world who are suffering for the name of Jesus. And they're doing it gladly, willingly laying down their lives. And so that's a blessing to my soul, an encouragement to me that, you know, there, there is, as I look around and sometimes we look around in America and the commitment to Christ just seems so, what's the word I'm looking for? So... I can't think of the right... It's not a commitment. I mean, it's a very loose commitment, right? We look overseas and we see what's going on around the world. We realize there are still people willing to lay down their life for the name of Christ, right? Now, are we willing to lay ours down every day and live for Christ, right? That's, that's the question at hand. But that's not the sermon, so let's, let's pray and we'll get into our, our message this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning again. We thank you for the blessing we have to gather in your name. We gather this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. We gather looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We gather in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit among us. Lord, we're not here to perform. We're not here for ourselves, Lord. I hope we're here for you. Here to worship the Father, to worship the Son, to worship the Spirit, the great three in one, one God and three persons, 
We thank you, Father, for decreeing our salvation. We thank you, Jesus, for accomplishing our salvation. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for dwelling in us, dwelling among us, drawing us to salvation, empowering our lives. And as I said earlier in my prayer, I pray that as we behold the face of Christ this morning, that he'll become more beautiful to us, more glorious to us, Lord. There is something beautiful in this Savior that I think a lot of times we miss. But yet people today around this world are laying down their lives for the beauty they see in the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask that your spirit guide us this morning and teach us more of you, more of your son. May we love Jesus more this morning as a result of being in your word. In Jesus' name I ask all of this and amen. Luke 16 in your Bibles. Luke 16. I want to look at a familiar passage of scripture. Luke 16. And we'll begin at verse number 19. And uh, just so you know, I know I tend to preach a long time, but my son has asked me in all sweetness and goodness, Daddy, please don't preach a long time. So I'm going to try not to do that. But... As a good dad, I didn't make him any promises. Luke 16, verse 19. We all know it. Go and read along with me. Follow along as I read. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Amen. This morning we're looking at one of the most common stories, I think, in the Bible. Um, there is some disagreement as to how to classify this story. Some call it a parable, while others believe it to be a true account of a... Boy, there's a fly in my hair. A true account of a conversation that happened in the afterlife. I'll say up front that I fall into the parable camp. Uh, although with all things I'm open to correction if it can be established scripturally. Um, so I want to examine why do people think it's a parable and why do people think it's not a parable. 
I want to look at both sides of that before, before we get too far into it. So I'm in the parable camp. I think the reason we, we want to classify this as a true story so much is because I think we're afraid if it's a parable, it brings into question the doctrine of hell. Okay, I've heard that said before. Um, but I, I don't think that's true. Um, just because Jesus uses hell in a parable, I don't think it means it doesn't really exist. Let me give you an example. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, he uses the city of Jericho, right? But this, we know the city of Jericho exists, right? Um, most of the parables, he brings into it the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this, right? We don't say, well, if that's a parable, then the kingdom of God doesn't really exist, Okay, uh, So I think you can use hell in a parable and, and have it not bring into question the doctrine of hell. Because the doctrine of hell is so widely attested to in the Bible. Okay, It doesn't rest on this story. right? We can go to other places in the Bible and bring a doctrine of hell uh, out of it. And so I don't think that that's really a problem. Um, so to better understand both sides... Let me give you a few reasons why it's considered a real account. The main one is that it uses the name of one of the characters. The argument goes that since no other parable uses a proper name, this must be a true story. Okay? Uh, I don't find that a solid argument against it being a parable. Um, it's like denying the moon landing because nobody ever landed on the moon before. Right? They didn't until they did, and now they have, and they've been there, right? So to say, well, Jesus didn't use proper names in parables. Well, he didn't before, but now he did, and so it's done. Uh, I, I don't think that discounts it as a parable. Uh, also, it's important to understand why he uses the name Lazarus in the story. Um, this story, this, this Jesus telling this story, falls in the timeline of the, of, the, of the scriptures just before the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So he was literally about to bring a man named Lazarus back from the dead in John 12, verse 10. And that doesn't convince them of the truth of Jesus. In fact, they conspired to kill Lazarus. So when Jesus said they won't be persuaded that one comes back from the dead, he's making a point to them that I'm about to do this and they're not going to be convinced. The second argument is that it doesn't call itself a parable, right? It doesn't say he spoke a parable unto them. The problem with this reasoning is that many other parables don't do that either. For instance, the parable of the unjust steward and the parable of the prodigal son don't do that. The third argument is that Jesus said there was a rich man. And so I've heard the argument made, well, Jesus said there was a rich man, and so therefore there must have been a rich man, right? The problem with that reasoning is my grandmother told me a story when I was a kid that there was an old lady who lived in a shoe, and there wasn't an old lady who lived in a shoe, right? That's a common way to start a story or a parable. So I don't, I don't find that particularly convincing. And if you believe it's a real story, I'm not trying to, to put water in your boat today. I'm just trying to give you reasons why I believe this and how we should look at and interpret the scriptures. Uh, I think it's okay if you believe that. I'm just trying to show you why I don't from the Bible. Uh, another note is that the parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16, the same chapter, begins in the same way. There was a certain man. Right? And so we have to look at that and say, okay, he begins that parable the same way he begins the same one in the, next, in the same chapter, the next parable in the same chapter. In fact, he says, and he said also to his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward. That's how he starts off in 16 verse 1. 
So why do I believe it is a parable? I think the best reason I can give is that it's found in a series of parables. Luke 15, 3-7 is the lost sheep. 15, 8-10 is the lost coin. 15, 11-32 is the prodigal son. 16, 1-10 is the unjust steward. If Jesus were switching to a true account from a parable, his hearers would be confused. Because he never changes the context of what he's doing. He's telling a series of parables, and if he's switching to a real account, you would think in the context there would be some change for them to understand, okay, this is no longer a parable that he's telling. The second reason is that it is, if you look at all the various elements of this story of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, they fit with points he's trying to make to his audience, which is very common in a parable. So having established that, let's examine who he's talking to, and then we'll look at elements of the narrative and see how application is made to these groups. So the first group he's talking to is the Sadducees, okay? The Sadducees uh, were a religious group, but they were more of a political group than a religious group, okay? They were the politics or politicians of Israel at the time. They ran the temple system. They were in charge of the sacrificial system. The high priest came from the sect of the Sadducees. Um, They held that only the first five books of Moses were inspired scripture. They denied the existence of angels as well as the afterlife. Uh, The second audience is the Pharisees who loved their wealth and saw themselves as the most righteous, rigorous law keepers. That fly is driving me nuts. They believed themselves to be the enforcers of God's law, which also included the added oral traditions that they held as equal to the actual law that God gave. They looked down on the poor and saw themselves as worthy of the most honor due to their strict religious observance and wealth. Okay, so having laid that foundation, let's look at the location of this particular story. The location. The location of the story is very important because it's in a string of parables. He wasn't telling this story as a standalone story, right? He's telling it in a, in a, in a, in a series of parables he's telling. So look back at Luke 15, verse 1. Luke 15, verses actually 1 and 2. We'll start with that. So the audience is very important. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, you have to remember that. He's talking to both groups. And then the location is important. He's talking in a string of parables. So Luke 15, 1 and 2. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, eateth with them. So Jesus is bringing bringing the gospel to publicans and sinners, right? These were the rejects of society. These were the people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't believe were worthy of the gospel. Okay, they thought the gospel was for the well-to-do, the, the, the rich, the, the religious observers. They, they thought it was for them, not for anybody else. Okay, they, they saw themselves as above these people. And so Jesus is teaching these people and, and these Pharisees, they're, they're getting angry. They're getting mad. What are you giving the gospel to them for? They don't matter in our society. So they begin to complain. Jesus then uses parables to rebuke them. He justifies reaching out to these people by teaching the parable of the lost sheep in chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, and the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. These explain the value of a single sinner to God. Then he begins to teach against them directly. He teaches the parable of the prodigal son in verses 11 through 32. In this parable, the father is representative of God. The prodigal represents these publicans and sinners right? That leave and sin and leave the father's house. The older brother represents who? 
the scribes and Pharisees, those who were bitter about them coming home and being rejoiced over, those who felt that, well, we've been serving God ourselves all this time. We've been, we haven't let, we're not sinners like they are. We don't, we, we deserve more. Why are you giving them the fatted calf? Why are you celebrating their salvation? We've been here the whole time. That's who they represent. He's, he's teaching against them directly. Chapter 16, Jesus begins with the parable of the unjust steward, which is teaching them to use their wealth for heavenly purposes. And then he caps it off with an important truth. Look at verse 16, or 13 of chapter 16. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. The Pharisees, of course, didn't like this. Look at verse 14. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. So this leads into the, parable, or the narrative of the rich man and Lazarus. So he, he's preaching against them, right? So they're bitter that he's preaching the gospel to the lower of society. So he begins to tell a couple of parables that demonstrate the value of one lost soul to God. Then he begins to teach against them directly. He's saying, you're the older brother. You're the one that's bitter. You, you should be celebrating what God is doing as the leaders of God's people, and you're not doing that. But see, they love their wealth. And so he goes into the parable of the unjust steward. But how are you you're to use your wealth for heavenly purposes, not earthly, not earthly gain? And then he says, you, he, he finishes that parable by saying, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and earthly things. And then the Pharisees get mad and they deride him and say, wait a minute. Who is this guy? What does he think he's talking about? And then from there, he goes into the parable, or the narrative, I'll call it, for argument's sake, of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's begin in verse 19. We're going to walk through our text and look at the elements of the text and see how they apply to the audience that he's talking to. And then what is the overall point he's trying to make with this story? So verse 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There would be no doubt in the mind of the Pharisees, he's talking about them. They are the rich men who live in luxury. I think he also has the Sadducees in mind, because if you notice in that verse, this rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen. That is the priestly garments, okay? The, the ones who control the temple were the Sadducees. So he's, he's, he's speaking to both groups. This is a rich man who fares sumptuously every day, the Pharisees, and he's clothed in the priestly garments, right? He's clothed in purple and fine linen, okay? So he's speaking to both groups here. Verse 20, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. This Lazarus is poor, and he's worse than poor. He's a beggar, homeless and laying at the gate of the rich man, covered in sores. He is not only poor and homeless, but sick and suffering as well. He represents, I believe, the people to whom Jesus was preaching the gospel to that the Pharisees were angry about. The publicans and sinners, the poor people. The ones the Pharisees thought, thought shouldn't get the gospel. They thought, we're better than them. We deserve more than they do. And Jesus is flipping things around now and saying, you guys are the rich man. Clothed in your priestly garments, faring well every day, rich, increased with goods, and eat of nothing. And then there's this poor beggar who's covered in sores. He represents those who are getting the gospel. While they, like the rich man, have means and self-importance, these have no reliance and nothing to offer in exchange for eternal life. They are sick, like Lazarus, in need of healing. 
The rich man is not suffering from his sickness because uh, he doesn't realize his need of a savior. This reminds me of another saying of Jesus in response to the Pharisees being upset that the poor were having the gospel preached to them. It's in Luke 5, verse 30. It says, but their scribes and Pharisees murmured against the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, they, are, they, are, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now he's not saying there that the Pharisees are righteous, they don't need to be saved. What he's saying is the Pharisees are self-righteous, and he didn't come for the self-righteous. He came for those who see their need of a Savior. He came to those who were humble, those who were poor. That's who needed the gospel preached. And the Pharisees didn't want to hear the gospel. The Sadducees didn't want to hear the gospel. They felt entitled. Surely we're God's people. Surely we're okay. That's why they were so mad when John was baptizing. Think about that, right? What John was doing when he was baptizing was he was doing the, uh, the Jewish um, proselyte baptism. So, right, Jews didn't get baptized, but proselytes who came to Judaism had to because they had to be ritually clean. They were unclean, right? So when John came to, to, to Israel preaching uh, uh, baptism of repentance for the remission of sin, what he's telling the Jews is, you too are unclean. You too need clean, cleansing. You too are unclean before God. And they were mad and they were offended because he's calling them unclean. So what he's saying, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. What he's saying is, he's not saying they aren't sinners. He's saying they're self-righteous. He didn't come for the self-righteous. He came for the one who sees his need of a savior, who sees his need of another righteousness. Let's continue our text. Verse 21, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. We see here the poor estate of Lazarus. Okay, the crumbs here are not itty-bitty crumbs like we think of crumbs, okay? Uh, back in Bible times, what I, as far as I understand, what they would do is the rich would keep slices of bread at their disposal, right? Because they ate with their hands. It was very greasy and dirty. And they would take the bread and they would use it like, like we would a napkin. And they'd soak up the oils off of their hands and then crumble them up and drop them on the floor for the servants to clean up, okay? That's what Lazarus is hungry for. That's how poor he is. He wants to eat the bread that the rich man cleaned his hands on. Okay? That sounds gross to you. That's the poor estate of every sinner. Okay? We are in no place to provide for ourselves. We are, we are getting the scraps of society when we're outside of Christ. We're just dogs in the, in the trash heap. I think, I, think, uh, when, 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 uh, I, think, I think it's in Hebrews when he talks about people who go back and leave the faith. Right? He refers to them as a dog just going back to their vomit again. Right? It's pretty disgusting. But that's what a sinner is. Apart from Christ, they are nothing. They are destitute. They are without hope. And he's trying to get across to them how destitute this man was. He had nothing to offer. He had nothing to give. He had no righteousness to bring of his own. The dogs came and licked his sores. Dog saliva has healing properties. I take that to be the rich man's dogs, which means even his dogs showed more compassion than he did. To the poor man. What an indictment against this rich man. Verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So in the process of time, the poor man died and was afforded, he was afforded no luxury in life, was he? He received no compassion from the rich man, yet in his death, he's carried by angels. Escorted 
to paradise. The rich man, in contrast, is simply buried. No angelic host transporting him gently. No servants here to meet his needs. In the world, Lazarus had no servants. And now he's served by angels. The rich man had servants in this life. But when he died, no servants were there waiting for him. He had nothing. He had nothing. Verse 23. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Uh, since I believe that Jesus is also referencing the Sadducees, it's important uh, to get this description, okay? They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. So when he's telling the story and he says this rich man died and immediately woke up in torment, he's telling them there is something after this life. There is life after death. There is another existence. He is contradicting their doctrine. Notice also there's no mention of soul sleep. There are churches today that believe that. that when a person dies, they simply stay asleep in their body until the resurrection one day. There's no mention of that. The rich man dies and he wakes up in torment in, in, in hell. The beggar dies and he's carried by the angels into paradise. One at peace, one in torment. Jesus told the thief on the cross that he would be with him in paradise that very day, Luke 23, 43. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Uh, I don't know what it's like when we talk about heaven today. You know, we, we tend to mix it up in church a lot of times when we talk about heaven. Um, when someone dies, you hear them running on streets of gold and all that. And that's, they're taking future descriptions right from Revelation and putting them now. But we don't have a resurrected body. So we, we don't really know what heaven now what's called the intermediate state is like. We, we don't. Until we get there, we just, the Bible doesn't tell us, right? We don't have a new body yet. We're not, we don't have a resurrected body. We're spirit beings of some kind and able to be conscious and move around and talk, yes. But we don't know what, what's waiting for us when we die before the resurrection from the dead. But Paul just tells us this. Paul says it's far better than being here. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. Not only, not only are we not sleeping in the grave, but where we are is far better than what we have here. The rich man, now tormented in hell, all of his riches and comforts are gone. He ignored his wicked heart, satisfying it with earthly pleasures, and now his wickedness consumes him. And this is really the essence of hell, isn't it? Being consumed by your wickedness. A taking away of any restraints and any goodness received from God. You realize that even sinners today receive good things from God? It's called common grace. It's a theological term for it. But sinners receive good things from God. Sinners enjoy vacations, marriage, children, good weather, right? They get blessings from God. They are restrained in their evil. Not every unsafe person does all the evil they could possibly do. There are some restraints on them in this world by God. But in hell, all those restraints are taken away. And all the blessings of God are removed. They are literally consumed by the darkness of their own heart. They are given over to be eternally consumed in their wickedness and hatred for God. The beggar, a righteous man, poor in this world's good, but rich spiritually, is in paradise in the bosom of Abraham. Now I'm going to get controversial again and break from tradition. Typically, it's taught that hell was in the center of the earth, and Abraham's bosom was a location across from hell, 
And they, since I don't take this as a real story, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't believe that, okay? I don't believe, I don't believe Abraham's bosom was a place that people went to when they died. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. And the reason people argue that is they try to say, well, their sins weren't forgiven until Jesus died, so they couldn't go into the presence of God. Okay, I'm, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But if it's called Abraham's bosom, what does that mean for people who died before Abraham was born? Right? Did Abel get there and God said, welcome to Abraham's bosom? He's like, who? Right? Many people died before Abraham. And then the Bible says that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. This means that in God's eyes, salvation was as good as accomplished before the world was even created. From before the fall of man. If Christ's death was as good as accomplished in the eyes of God, then all the benefits that come from it were as good as accomplished, which means those who believed in Christ before he died were just as saved as those who believe in him looking back on his death. So I don't believe there's any reason why a a saint in the Old Testament couldn't go directly to the presence of God. Their sins were forgiven looking forward to the coming of Christ, looking forward to the Redeemer. Otherwise, we have to say there was two different types of salvation, right? A lower class salvation and an upper class salvation. I I don't believe that's true. I think all saints who have ever died, died and went into the presence of God. That's just my belief. Um, In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, we see Elijah going up to heaven in a chariot of fire, not down into the earth. Um, So, you know, it's it's not something that, you know, I'm going to break fellowship over, but I think we need to be biblical in how we look at things. And and I I don't think God provided a lesser salvation for Old Testament saints. I think they were just as saved as us. I think they went right to the presence of God in light of their faith in Christ. So why does it say he was in Abraham's bosom? Well, this is a term of nearness. Remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees fancied themselves children of Abraham, didn't they? And they expected to be honored and to be in one's bosom. To be, you read in the Bible how John rested on the bosom of Jesus, right? It was a term of nearness. He was the apostle that Jesus loved. He was closer to Jesus than the other apostles. And so by talking about Abraham's bosom, he's telling these Pharisees that while you think you're Abraham's children, while you think you're privileged, right? This beggar that you cast out, this beggar you didn't care about, he is now leaning on the bosom of Abraham and you are cast out. It goes along with what Jesus said, right? That many will come from the east and west and north and south and sit down in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. He's talking to the Pharisees there. He says, you're going to see people come into the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you won't get to go. You won't get to be there. So he's speaking of his place of honor in paradise. This rich man was dishonored in this world, but honored in the next. How many Christians today seek to be honored in this world, don't they? I've been guilty of it myself. We seek. We want to be honored. We want to be well spoken of. We want to be celebrated. We want want to be famous Christians. But let me tell you something. It's the dishonored in this world that will be honored in the next. The first will be last. The last will be first. Okay? There are lowly saints right now in Afghanistan who will be martyred and killed for for their faith in Jesus Christ, who I promise you will be closer to Jesus and honored more in the next world than D.L. Moody or C.H. Spurgeon. See, we honor those big names, don't we? We know the big guys. But there are little widow ladies who serve the Lord, who I think will have a a better place of honor than some of these big preachers that we, you know, we think of Billy Graham. Oh, man. Yeah. He did a lot for the kingdom of God, didn't he? 
And yeah, he won a lot of people to Christ. He's going he's to be so, so honored. But you know who's probably going to be honored more than him? The little widow who was faithful to pray for him every day and support the work of missionaries who never got any notice in this life, who was poor. Maybe she came into church and people snickered at her and maybe they excluded her because she didn't have the nicest clothes, wasn't part of the, the rich, you know, you know how church gets, right? I've been in large churches where people who are well-to-do and wealthy kind of gather in their little groups and some people who, who live in the, the lower-class neighborhoods aren't welcome in those groups. Those are the people who are going to be honored in the next life. Jesus is saying, you guys expect to be honored and you're going to be cast out of the kingdom. And this man here that you guys dishonored and showed no love and no compassion to, yeah, he was a godly man. He will, he will be on Abraham's bosom, resting with Abraham. Verse 24, when he cried and said, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me and send Lazarus. He may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice something about the abode of the damned. He never asks to leave, and he never asks for forgiveness. I think those who are there know there's no escaping. There's no escaping. And I also don't think there's repentance. I don't think people get to hell and are sorry for their sins. Because to be repentant means you have to have a new heart, right? You have to become a new creature in Christ. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. I don't believe they have faith in hell. I don't believe they turn to Christ and are sorry. I think they're sorry they're being punished. But I don't think they're sorry for their sins. They're now consumed by their sins. They're now consumed by the darkness of their heart. I don't think they regret anything. I think they hate God more and more because of their punishment. But I don't think there's any repentance in hell. Listen to what Jesus says about hell. Matthew 13, 50. And shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. He calls it a furnace of fire. We see in our text, the rich man said he was tormented in the flame. There is both wailing and gnashing of teeth. The term gnashing of teeth is a term of anger, right? It means they're angry. That's what it means. I'm angry. People in hell aren't blessing the name of God. They're cursing the name of God. They're cursing the name of God. We see this term used in Acts 7.54 when Stephen was put to death. They were angry with him. They gnashed at him with their teeth. They were angry at what he was preaching. We see it a few other times in Scripture. Psalm 112.10 says, The wicked shall see it and be grieved, and he shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Lamentations 2.16, All thy enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash the teeth. They say, We have swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day that we looked for. We have found. We have seen it. It's a term of anger. When he says there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, that means there's crying, there's weeping for their punishment, but gnashing of teeth, their anger towards God because their sin consumes them. His grace is removed. His goodness is removed. Hell is not a place of separation from God. It's a place of separation from the goodness of God. From the blessings of God. I hear people say all the time, and I hear it especially among street preachers, you know, if you don't turn to Christ and get saved, you'll be separated from God forever. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that. Listen to this. Revelation 14.10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the, ra- uh, into the cup of his indignation, and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Those who are in hell aren't separated from God's gaze. They, he sees them. 
And he's eternally satisfied at their judgment. He's eternally angry with them, with the wicked. He sees, he knows their torment. He knows it's a just punishment for their sins. They're not separated from God. They're separated from the goodness of God. All the blessings of God in hell are removed. All the good things in hell are removed. And all the sinner is left with is his dark heart. You know today, sinners have a lot of other things. They have religion that kind of keeps their, their sin under control. A lot of religious people live good moral lives, don't they? But they're not saved. Religion is a nice tether on their, on their sin, but they're not saved. But imagine removing that tether. Imagine remo- removing that restraint away from them. Some people just are raised and they're not saved, but they're raised in homes that have, a, have a, a sense of morality, right? America used to be filled with that, didn't it? Back in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, you, hear on, you ever watch The Wizard of Oz and, and uh, the, the aunt gets mad at the, the lady who becomes the witch in the story? And she says, there's a lot of things I want to say to you, but as a good Christian lady, I can't say it. She didn't mean she was a Christian, like went to church, read her Bible, but she just meant as a moral person, right? Because in America, they had a sense of morality that was taught to people. But when that morality is removed, and all that's left is the sinner and their sin, oh man, their sin will consume them for eternity. The Lord is beholding the punishment of his enemies. Hell is separation from the goodness of God. He is infinitely angry with the damned, and they are eternally hating him. What the rich man does ask for is mercy. Just a little relief from his suffering. He never showed mercy to others, did he? But now he wants it for himself. He never tried to relieve the suffering of Lazarus. But now he wants Lazarus to relieve his suffering. He still, even in this condition, looks down on Lazarus. Think about this. He doesn't ask Abraham to fetch him some water, does he? He said, send Lazarus. Even now, he sees Lazarus as a servant, as someone beneath him, as someone there to serve him and meet his needs. He hasn't changed at all. Verse 25, 26, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, and now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So he's saying there's a great gulf fixed, so you can't come here and we can't go there. There's no relief. There's no mercy in hell. There's no mercy. There's no goodness. There's no grace. There is nothing but suffering and evil there. Consumed by your own wickedness. Suffering because of your wickedness. Wailing and gnashing of teeth is not a place of mercy and grace. Mercy and grace, that was afforded to him before he got there. And he rejected it. He rejected it. Abraham informs him that there is no mercy where he is now. All of the goodness and mercy of God that he would receive is past. He had received from God all the mercy he would. And Abraham points out that the righteous will not suffer anymore in this life, this new life. All the suffering a child of God will receive is in this world. When the righteous pass to the next world, there is only rest, comfort, and joy. They are in the presence of God, protected from evil and from harm. When Paul spoke of dying and going to be with Christ, as I said, he called it far better. I wouldn't call the rich man's condition far better, would you? No. 
Because all the goodness and grace and mercy that the wicked receive, they receive in this life only. This is all the heaven the wicked will get. And this is all the hell the Christian will get. None can pass from heaven to hell to bring the mercies of God, and the damned cannot cross over there to partake of the goodness of God. The chasm between God's mercy and justice cannot be crossed by sinful man. The righteous man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, he crossed it one time. One time he crossed from the mercy of God across to the justice of God. And if we reject his crossing, if we reject what he did, there's no more mercy beyond this life. There's no other way across that chasm. If we reject his mercy, there's no second offer. The rich man is asking for mercy, isn't he? He's saying, just, just a little bit of relief for my suffering. Show me a little bit of mercy. And Abraham said, there is no mercy where you are. You had a chance for mercy, and you rejected it. There's no more mercy. There's no more grace. God is merciful and gracious, isn't he? He's kind. He's quick to forgive. He's loving. But for those who pass into eternity without him, they are forever his enemies. There's only the hardness and severity of God at that point. Verse 27, 28. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. In the next verse, he's asking for Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house to warn his five brothers. There he is again, right? Lazarus is a servant. Send him. Let him go do my bidding. Still, he's unchanged. He's the same person. Oh, I wouldn't ask Abraham to do that, but Lazarus, he's just a servant. He's a nobody. This man is not repentant. He's the same person. The reference to the five brothers, I think, is important because he's talking to the Sadducees as well. The Jewish historian Josephus records for us that the high priest Caiaphas had five brothers. What he's telling them is, there is life after this, and you're not immune to it. This man, this is you, Caiaphas. This is you in this place of torment, cast out of the kingdom of God. The rich man finally seems to show a little compassion for someone else. Perhaps if Lazarus comes back from the dead, they'll finally believe. Of course, Jesus makes an important point because a man named Lazarus was about to come back from the dead. And they still wouldn't believe. Verse 29, Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham rejects his logic and tells him, They have the scriptures. They have the scriptures. They have the testimony of God. If people, re listen, people don't reject God for lack of evidence. I say, I say this a lot. People don't reject God because they're not convinced of God. Romans 1 tells us that they all know that God exists. We know that God exists. It's written in our hearts, but we suppress that truth because we love our unrighteousness. We love our sin, and so we pretend that God doesn't exist. But we know that he does. Everybody knows that he does. And God has revealed himself through his word. If we reject his revelation, there is no other revelation. And if God came to them a different way, they wouldn't be convinced. You say, how do you know that? Because God did come to them in the flesh, died and rose from the dead, attested by many witnesses. And what did they do immediately? They bribed the soldiers to say that he was stolen in the night. They knew he was gone. 
They knew he rose from the dead. They didn't have the body. They could have just given the body up and said, here he is. He's not risen. He's right here. They didn't have the body. They knew the disciples couldn't have gotten the body. They couldn't have broken a Roman seal and overpowered the guards. There's no way. They knew that he rose from the dead, and they still rejected him as Messiah. They still lied to cover their tracks. You know why? Because it, didn't, it wasn't that they weren't convinced. They knew who Jesus was. Keep in mind, the Pharisees didn't crucify Jesus because they didn't believe. They crucified him because they didn't love him. And no sinner dies and goes to hell because they don't believe. They die and go to hell because they don't love Christ. Right? Remember, let me prove to you my point. Okay? When Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, came to Jesus by night, John chapter 3, what did he say to Jesus? We know that you're a teacher come from God. We know. They knew it. I think it was John 7 or John 8, where they, they tried to arrest Jesus. They said, if we let him go, all will believe on him. You know why? Because they knew who he was. They knew the power that he had. When Jesus told the parable of the landowner that sent his servants to, to check on his land, they, they killed some and cast them out of the vineyard. And then he says, I'll send them my own son. They'll reverence him. And they said in the parable, well, there's the heir. Let's kill him and cast him out and seize his inheritance. After he told that parable... It says the Pharisees knew they were talking, that he was talking about them. They knew who he was. When there's a parable told in the parable, the people said, we'll not have this man to rule over us. Jesus didn't say they didn't believe he was the Messiah. They said, we'll not have this man to rule over us. When they brought Jesus to the crowds and they said, behold your king. They didn't say, that's not our king. We don't believe that's the fulfillment of the prophecy. They said, we have no king but Caesar. They didn't not believe in him. They rejected him. That was the condemnation that Peter gave at Pentecost. You have killed the prince of life. You knew who he was. God raised him from the dead, and you rejected him anyways. It's not a lack of evidence that people have. They don't love God. They love their sin. They love their sin. So Abraham says, no, no. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. Verse 30. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. He says, No. If they don't believe the testimony of God, they're not going to believe if someone comes back from the dead. You want evidence? Two people did. Lazarus, and they conspired to kill him. And Jesus, and they lied and covered why his body disappeared. It's happened twice, and both times the Jews rejected it. The rich man argues that they won't believe the scriptures, but they will believe someone rising from the dead. Abraham rejects this. Abraham rejects this. This proves true both in the case of Lazarus and Jesus. When Jesus comes back from the dead, proving his claims, they just lie about him. That's it. They know. Why is the scriptures enough? Well, first of all, because the word of God is powerful. It's the word of the living God. It converts the soul. I wasn't saved because I became convinced by enough evidence that Jesus was God. It was a work that God did in my heart. Faith is what saves us, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Listen to what Jesus told the religious Jews, John 5, 46. He said, For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? He's saying, if you don't believe the scriptures, you're not going to believe me. 
John 5.39, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He said, search the scriptures, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees taught the scriptures. The scribes copied the scriptures. He says, look at those scriptures. They testify of me. They point to me. You don't believe them. You don't believe them. So let's make application of this story and we'll be done. What's Jesus saying? He's saying there is a life after this one. There is a life after this one. He's saying that wealth and position in this world will not save us from the wrath to come. It will not. He's saying the salvation only comes by believing the word of God. When we believe the word of God, we believe on the one who came to stand in our place before God. Only through him can we be reconciled to God. We must come to him, trust in his death for our sin, repent of our sin, and follow him. That's the only way to find the mercy of God. If we don't do that, then we die, and we are forever separated from the mercy and goodness of God. Life's not over when we die. Life continues on. But there's no hope for mercy after death. The message of the rich man and Lazarus can be summed up as follows. There is a life after this one. Turn to Christ and live. Humble yourselves to be exalted. Don't trust in wealth or possessions, but in the living God revealed through the word of God. Look to him, the savior, the redeemer, the sin bearer. Look and live. Reject him and die eternally. Separated from all of his goodness and grace and mercy. Listen, you cannot reject Jesus in this life and hope for his mercy and grace in the next you can't. His mercy and grace come with him. It's a package deal. Probably most people in the room today are saved. But we all know people who aren't, don't we? See, I don't know anybody who's unsaved. Then walk outside and look around at the houses and the cars driving by and the people. So many thousands in our city are without God are apart from the goodness and mercy of God. And if we don't tell them, if we don't take them the message, faith comes by hearing the word of God. If we're not speaking the word of God to them, they're not going to get saved. And when they die, they will be separated from the mercy and grace and goodness of God. We all have loved ones who are in that condition, who when they die will be separated from the mercy and goodness and grace of God. What are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? Do we just go to work and go home and go to work and go home and take a vacation and go to church and go home and let the world die? That's fine. And they'll be separated from the mercy and the love and the goodness of God for all of eternity. We've got to tell people. We've got to speak the word of God that saves the sinner. If we don't, then they'll perish. They'll perish. And my guess is, I'm not trying to accuse. If that doesn't concern us, the people are perishing. We're probably not saved ourselves. And in that case, we may find ourselves one day separated from the love, goodness, and mercy of God forever. If you don't care for others to be saved, I'd be very worried about your salvation. That should concern us. 
That should concern us greatly because we know what's coming for sinners. And we should stand and be like, hey, 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 don't do this. Don't go that way. Well, they, they, they probably won't listen, most of them. But we have to tell them. When Jesus said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, he said, go, 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 share the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, teach them what I've taught you. He left it to us to reach the lost. He left us a message. He left us a word, a powerful word that creates faith in the heart of sinners. But that word must be spoken to those sinners. That news must be given to those sinners if they are to be saved. So speak the word of God. It's so easy for us to forget, isn't it, as Christians? We think, okay, I got it. I'm good. Got my ticket stamped. Put it in my pocket, I'm good to go. And we go on living our life, forgetting there is a world out there that is perishing. A world out there that is perishing. And will one day wake up separated from the goodness of God, consumed by their own evil heart. What are we doing? What am I doing? What are you doing? What are we doing as a church? What are we doing as people? Some preach on the streets. I do. Some preach at abortion clinics. I do. I have. Some go door to door. I do. Join us. Join us on Monday nights. Put tracks on doors. It's got the gospel on it. People are perishing. Carry tracks in your pocket when you go to the store. Give it to somebody. Leave it on a, on a bread shelf. Leave it in an elevator. Leave it on a park bench. What I'm saying is, how do we go about our lives? And we go a whole week and we don't give the gospel to anybody? People are perishing. People are perishing. And they will wake up one day consumed by their wicked heart. Never to taste of the mercy of God. And we have a message of hope and we're holding it back for what? Our own convenience? Our fear of people. You realize there are people today who will die because they name the name of Jesus. Who cares if we're a little embarrassed that we get rejected and we give a gospel track? Offer it anyways. People are perishing. What are we doing about it? What are we doing? And if you're here and you're not saved, one day you're going to wake up in a place of no mercy and no return. The hour of God's grace and mercy is now. Now. We're not promised tomorrow. It's now to receive that mercy. Don't gamble with eternity. It's not a winnable game. Turn to Christ and live. There is a life coming. If you want an easy life right now, Christian, it's not right now. It's coming. Let's lay down our lives to get the gospel to people who are perishing. It's on our shoulders. We have the message. We have the words of eternal life, but we have to give them out or people will die and they will perish in their sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. This story in the Bible. We hear it so much. I've heard it a thousand times. 
in my life. It's just so common, this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but so much powerful truth in there. You took a man who was rich and needed nothing, and you showed those who trusted in their wealth their wealth won't save them in the day of judgment. You clothed them in the, the priestly garments, the priests who believed there was no life coming, and you said, no, no, you are going to face this judgment too. You are going to face this punishment too. You told the Pharisees and Sadducees their, their wealth wouldn't save them, their religiosity wouldn't save them, and the same message goes to us today. Our works won't save us. Our wealth won't save us. Being in this church doesn't save us. Preaching in this pulpit doesn't save us. Leading the singing doesn't save us. We could serve God in this church in 20 different ways for 50 different years and die and perish in hell because our hearts were not right with you. Religion doesn't save. And once we get to that next world, there's no crossing. There's no crossing from the judgment of God over to partake of his mercy. That chasm was crossed one time by Jesus Christ. When he brought the goodness of God to us lost sinners, in the cross, and he bore on the cross our sins, our just punishment, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. And you call us today to partake of that mercy. Woe to us if we reject it. Woe to us if we put it off for another day. And woe to us if we partake of that mercy and tell no one. As we live our lives every day, we come within five feet of hundreds of people at work, gas stations, grocery stores, shopping malls, walking down the street. We come within feet of people who will perish without the, the word of God, the salvation of God, who will perish and never partake of the mercy of God, and we say nothing. We give them no tract. We give them no, no word of testimony. We give them no scripture. Give us eternal eyes, Lord, to realize that they will perish apart from your word. Oh, that we would become soul-conscious people. If there's anyone here today who's not saved, they don't know that their sins are forgiven, they don't know they're right with God, oh, they would be saved today. Oh, they would be saved today. And there's a Christian in here who went last week without sharing the gospel with anybody. May they not let this day go to rest before they share the gospel with somebody. Give us more of a burden for the lost than we have right now.
In Jesus' name, amen.